Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon. Yes, it's flavour time when we look at the news and stories about the Cambridge area food and drink scene. Here in the studio is the full flavour team of Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and myself, Matt Bentman. So let's have a look at what we have in store today. Writer, broadcaster, part owner of Fitzbillies and all-round foodie, Tim Haywood, will be talking about his new book and much else. I'll be in conversation with Professor Martin Jones about his work in food archaeology and about his talk with the author of a new book, Edible Economics, Professor Hajun Chang, as part of the Cambridge Festival. I follow my nose to the sweet and smoky aromas of a Hungarian grocery shop in Chesterton Road, and we'll be trying out some of their products too. And we've lots of local food and drink news, information about where to get free food, updates from social media, and our jobs roundup too. So, stay tuned. First though, Mill Road, or more precisely, Mill Road Bridge. The decision was made this week to close it to private vehicles. It's still open to buses, taxis, blue badge holders, cyclists and pedestrians. But what could it mean for the shops? A reduced footfall? A cut in takings? Closure? Or none of these things? First up, here's Richard Stokes of Finboys near the town end of Mill Road. Richard, a, a, a very controversial matter is the closure, possible closure of the Mill Road Bridge. How, how would it affect you, do you think? Yeah, affecting uh, Finboys, um, it would probably be a positive if the bridge was shut. Uh, I think people could eat outside and enjoy uh, outside without too much in the way of, of, of petrol, diesel fumes. Um, we did actually find the first year when the road was closed, we had many more people eating outside compared to last year when we had that wonderful summer um, and many more beautiful days. We had less people eating last year because of the road was probably open. But really conscious of the fact that all businesses the other side uh, of, of the bridge, I think um, uh, in favour of it staying open. Uh, they struggle, struggle without the, the, the passing um, trade, so to speak, with all the, the cars. I do know that it's, it is a bit of a rat run through the, the city. Mill Road always has been. But um, I would defer to businesses the other side of the bridge, really. And if they wanted to remain open, um, you know, you don't want to, it to be the death knell of any businesses. So if it uh, has to stay open, you know, I'm, I'd support that. If other businesses want it, it's not a problem at all with us. Great. Here's an opinion from Catherine of Little Petra, the Jordanian restaurant that's closer to the bridge. Like Richard, she talks here about Little Petra's experience when the bridge closed during the lockdown a couple of years ago. Even for us, we would go to the cash and carry. When the bridge was closed, we couldn't travel over it. So what was a 10-15 minute journey with traffic suddenly became 45 minutes because you were getting stuck in the traffic that was on the other roads. So now you've tripled your pollution 
increased your time, which means you've lost time in the business, you're doing your journey and then having to come back again. So what could have been half an hour, 45 minutes out the business is suddenly a two-hour round trip. And what small business can afford for somebody to be out for that long? That was our main objection. I, I feel for businesses who've been around for years and years, like the butchers, you know, new businesses that open up and within a couple of months they realise, actually, this is just too hard. And we stop people having that entrepreneurial attitude to life. People's resilience, you, you knock it down enough and you do wear them away and they just can't get back up. A manager at a shop closer to the bridge on the town side confirmed a drop in business the last time the bridge was closed and a return to normal takings when it reopened. One thought is that the shops over the bridge on the Romsey side might suffer the most due to the closure. Here's a brief opinion from a lady working on the Romsey side at Hillary's, the greengrocer. I don't think it's going to have either positive or negative. I don't think it will make a big difference, to be honest. Most of our customers come here by foot, so... It's possible that food places may be insulated a little from this change. A cafe on the Romsey side said that they weren't too bothered by the bridge closing, which again might suggest that customers on foot are their bread and butter. A restaurant, though, that might be a little bit more vulnerable. Don't people tend to make that a special night out, travelling in from further afield? Here's Christina again from Little Petra Restaurant. There are a lot of people local to the area who will walk, or bicycles. But there are also a lot of people who will drive from Romsey side over the bridge because they know they're going to buy ingredients or do a little bit of shopping and they're going to have lunch. And they might then get takeaway. What the bridge closure does is stop that almost cross-pollination of customers. Do you think customers make a meal of the street of the Mill Road Mile? You know, they're using multiple shops. Yes, definitely. I think people are generally, um, you know, they'll buy something here, something in the co-op. They'll go off to harvest, um, maybe have a coffee and limoncello. So, yeah, it is definitely local shopping. It didn't matter what type of shop you were looking for. You found it along Mill Road. For the local community, that's great. They can walk there. For those a little bit further out, it was an opportunity to visit each type of shop and get in your car and leave. And I think now the community are feeling like, you know, they've been separated into these two sides. They're not even fighting. They don't want that separation. The closure of the bridge, it's not dealing with the cause of the pollution problem. It's dealing with the symptom. All it's doing is driving that traffic somewhere else to cause pollution somewhere else for a longer period of time because it's going to take longer to get where they're going. We're not getting rid of the car journeys. And I lived in London for years. I know what it's like to have a brilliant transport system where you walk out your front door, you get on a bus, you go somewhere and you come back with your you know, 10 bags of groceries. That's not what Cambridge has got. And it's either Cambridge will be a cycle-only city, then small businesses need to close and move out, and then what have we got? Or it's, let's look at doing this differently. So, what does it mean? Good for locals? 
Bad for anybody trying to shop Mill Road by car? Is the problem going to be for businesses trying to restock their shops, not being able to sustain the extra time and effort incurred? Will we lose the Romsey side that had been developing so nicely over the last several years? Places like Eclipse Bakery, Harvest, Tradizioni, Bravo Patisserie, Lutayo, and Relevant Record Café, to name just a few, joined the street alongside Limoncello, Black Cat Café, Urban Larder, and others? Now that the decision has been made to close Mill Road Bridge, a bus gate is due to be installed in the summertime. The decision to close the bridge to cars and lorries was passed by a very narrow margin. Prior to that, the Mill Road Traders Association managed to generate more response from the public to keep the bridge open than the questionnaire originally distributed by the Greater Cambridge Partnership, where the response was to close the bridge. Now details of free food available in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, and that exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Yeah, and today's look at Olio for Cambridge shows us that Claire in Fenditton has all the breads, including tiger cobble rolls, paninis, tiger baguettes, scotch rolls and a soft, thick white toasty loaf, and plenty of red and brown onions available. Russell in Coleridge Road has three large packs of spring onions, tender stem broccoli and baby spinach, as well as packs of mixed veg to give away. Becky in Arbury has a selection of assorted teas, including spiced pear tea bags and winter tram, I hope I said that right, winter tram orange tea. And just time for one more, Nick, he's a regular on the Olio app, he's also in the Arbury area too, and he is giving away tomato and basil pasta sauce, garden peas and a jar of coffee. All a little bit random, perhaps, but that's just a few of the things that are currently up on the Olio app in the Cambridge area today. And there's another free app called Too Good To Go, and that has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Tim Haywood has a new book just published. It's called The Big Green Egg Feasts, and it is an extraordinary book. Alan spoke with Tim earlier in the week. I think a lot of the, of, of the world, apart from us with our strange tin box ovens, um, a, a lot of people ki- cook in clay-based ovens. They're very popular across you know, most of Southeast Asia, most of the Arabic countries, across even most of Southern Europe. Um, and consequently, those are, those are ovens that sort of hold heat themselves. And a big green egg is, is, is based on a, a Korean type of barbecue called a kamado, um, which is basically the, domestic, the standard domestic oven. So you, 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 you can cook on the grill inside in the same way as you can with a barbecue. But what it's really all about is you put the lid down and you control the heat with the, the little shutters and you can set the temperature to pretty much anywhere you want it to be. Um, I have a little computerised device that I do to program <laughs> it with because I, I would. Uh, but you can set it to pretty much any temperature you want to and, and it'll, it'll, it'll be very consistent in running that. So it's great for long, slow cooking. It's great for roasting and, and uh, sort of gentle cookery. And you can also get ferocious heat out of it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a funny bit of kit, but it's, but it's good fun. But, but in your book, I th- now what was it that I saw? Uh, was it a pineapple ta- uh, tata? Oh, yes. A tata of some description. <laughs> I mean, you don't expect to open up the lid of a conventional barbecue and find a 
something like that inside. <laughs> no, but, but, the, but that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. I mean, I think with any form of, of cooking equipment, if you're a proper geek, and I really am, <laughs> I think, you know, you, you look at it and you go, oh, that gets hot down there. And, oh, I love that gentle heat coming in from there. And the tartan, which is a classic sort of upside-down tart, you think about it, you know, you go, oh, I've got an earthenware pot I can do that in. The bottom will get hot enough to caramelise the sugar. What will be great in that? And then, I, you know, there, there happened to be some pineapples around that, that, that week. Sliced pineapples into, into the syrup and then just put some dough down at the top of it, some... some uh, I basically used some puff pastry I'd nicked from Fitzbilly's, tuck it in around the sides, and you know that the bottom is going to sear through beautifully, and the top will cook gently under this dome, and it's a lovely thing. And you flip it out, put some rum-flavoured cream and a bit of grated lime zest on top, and everybody goes, wow, that's incredible, and it is incredible, it's lovely, dead easy. <laughs> and the, the fact that it's got this lid which presumably seals pretty well because yes. there are uh -huh. quite a few reminders in the book about having to lift the lid gently to burp to the big green burp egg. So, the big green egg. <laughs> so ah, it's ah, builds ah. up some sort of pressure. So steam will build up. So I guess it's good for bread as well. It's great for bread. It's great for bread. Because that's one of the things about the domestic oven and cooking bread, isn't it? Just, you can't do really it. get no, a lot of no. steam in a domestic so it's, oven. So it's, it's really good for bread. Actually, the burping is not for built-up steam. Have you ever seen the the? Gosh, is it, is it is it Kurt Russell in the movie Backdraft? I know it certainly had Robert De Niro in it as, as an arsonist. But there's, no, there's, a, there's basically it's a it's a it's a phenomenon they have in firefighting called a backdraft, where you can um, if all the doors are shut on a room, it will starve itself of oxygen, but the fire will have heated it up above the flash point of most of the stuff that's in the room. So because the egg seals itself pretty much airtight when you've got the lid down, it cooks away inside, but it can also, all of the flame can just die down because there's no oxygen, but it'll be at 200 degrees centigrade. So when you lift the lid, the oxygen gushes in and there's an enormous woof, which will uh, take all the hair off your forearms, which is always good fun, and remove your eyebrows. <laughs> but no, so you, you, yeah, you let the air in gently, you let it go woof, and then you lift the top. That's the, the technique. But it's, yeah, it's all to do with superheated air. But I love stuff like that. I mean, it's real O-level science, but, but it's great fun to play with. Oh, and I was struck by the variety of, of recipes in the book. I mean, obviously, the pineapple tartan, but food from North Africa, from Japan. There's a most wonderful-looking um, Indian chicken curry in there. There's Tuscan food. There's a section on seafood. It's, it's incredibly adaptable, isn't it? And, and I think that's, I mean, that's how I use it, because I'm genuinely, I'm such a food nerd, and I don't really do that many, hey guys, come around to my place for steak and sausages at the weekend. Uh, I'm not that much of a, a barbecuer in that sense. Um, but, you know, for most of us foodies, it's quite strange listening to us talk, because you know, we, we spend X number of thousand pounds on these sort of silvery ovens we have in our kitchens, like they have in a professional French restaurant kitchen. And then we go completely woo-woo about everywhere else we've travelled in the world where the best food was cooked by usually a little old lady squatting next to a tin bucket full of charcoal. So I love it because I can replicate all of those things with this bit of kit. Yeah, um, indeed, yeah. yeah. The egg gets to very high temperatures, doesn't it? So it, it can. You can also possible, keep it at very yeah. low temperatures, but you can do really hot stuff right. with it, yeah. Okay, because I was thinking, I mean, I know there's, there's a pizza in the book, and that's, mm. again, something that domestic ovens don't get to a high enough... Mm temperature to to bake properly but presumably something like the portuguese pasty 
uh, pastel de donata oh, God, becomes yes. possible because yeah. they need high temperatures. They need, but they've got a very high searing temperature, and of course you can get the temperature because the, 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 the top of it is made of a ceramic. You've got a dome with heat reflecting back down, so it's very good for pastels, yeah. That's quite a, quite a few dishes from North Africa there. I think some, I mean, I'm not a, an expert on North African food, but some of them I've not heard of before. Um, how did you come across those? What made you decide to do those? I, I basically spent some time in Marrakesh. <laughs> Actually, it was a lockdown project. Uh, we, were, we were trying to research ways of making bread that didn't involve ingredients that might have been tough to get our hands on at certain times. So I was looking at unleavened breads uh, and using things like uh, semolina, stuff like that. Um, we didn't have to use any of those in the end, but I'd had the experience, which was marvellous. Um, and so uh, I just found some recipes that, were the, that, that would work with that. Uh, most of them are sort of oral transmission and they've been collected at weird times by different people, but it's, it's great, you know, great fun and uh, it's easy to do the experiments on the, on the egg site, so we did. So yeah, there's, there's, there's some good stuff. I mean, um, so the, the, the tradition of North, in North Africa is that there aren't uh, domestic ovens in the sense that we have them. You do have a, a small, flat charcoal barbecue box uh, much like the ones you'd see in Greece or in Turkey. If you want to, to cook something slowly and in an enclosed space, you use the, 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 the pottery and ceramic things that they've created, things like tagines. You would actually put your raw ingredients in the tagine in the morning. Uh, you'd wrap it in a cloth of a colour that you could recognise, and then you take it and you leave it outside the bakery on your way to work in the morning. And when the bakers are finished baking the flatbreads, they go outside the front door, they bring them all in, holding them by the cloths, and pop them inside... Uh, as the oven cools down for the rest of the day. They tie the cloths on the outside in order so they know which one is which. And then at the end of the day, when you come back along, they've closed down, but sitting outside the door of the bakery are your, is your tagine with your tea towel wrapped around it and your cloth colour, and you can take it home. And you, you, know, you buy some bread to go with it, and that's how you pay for it. Um, we should do this in Fitzbillies, I'm sure. We should have some communal, <laughs> communal heat sharing. God knows our electricity bill's gone up so high. It's probably the only way we can survive. Um, but no, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, but they, but they just don't have this oven thing. So looking at that, it's a tremendous way to come up with all kinds of recipes that really, really respond to that kind of baker's oven, low and slow cooking. I was very impressed with the recipe for uh, um, a, a particular kind of dough they use. There's a hard wheat called durham wheat, which is unbelievably high gluten. Um, and you make it, you rest it for a while, and then you can stretch it out. And the idea is you can just keep stretching and flick it and stretch it and flick it and stretch it until it covers the entire table and you can read the newspaper through it. And this is effectively the, the dough you'd use to make baklava uh, or any of the sort of, you can cut it up into little shreds, but it's so tough and strong. And you paint it with olive oil and fold it over on itself and you make this fantastic puff pastry, which you can then wrap around all kinds of different fillings. And all this stuff is easy to cook. Well, effectively, you, you know, you can set the egg up so it's got a big hot stone. So you're cooking it like you'd be doing that, which is exactly the same as a comal in the whole of South and Central America, uh, you know, on which you cook your tortillas or on which you cook your slow-cooked meat carnitas. Um, and it's, there's, obviously you can go around the side, and there's hot charcoal there so you can get the skins off your peppers. Mm. So if, you, if you've got all that kit sitting there in the corner and you use it to burn three sausages and wreck a steak, I think you're <laughs> fundamentally under-challenging yourself. The company approached me directly to write the book, um, and they've had other, they've written other books about barbecuing before. I said, look, I'm really happy to do it, but I use it as my geek toolbox, um, and I would like to write your first barbecue book that doesn't have any steaks or sausages in it. 
and there was a, <laughs> there was a slight intake of breath. But once I'd actually gone through it with them, I mean, there's a couple of sausage things and there's a steak thing in there, I'm sure, somewhere if you look. But, but, the, but it was much more the point of, I think this is so exciting. And I actually think most of your, your users, your, your installed user base, think this is pretty damn cool too. And if you tell them they can do something that they've only ever seen before in a night market in Bangkok or, or a roadside in Vietnam, then yeah, that's great. You know, do that stuff with this thing. And it has, it has a much, much grander purpose to it. I, I find it so enjoyable. Well, I should think the people behind the big green egg are, are pretty pleased with the book then, because it's, you know, it is pushing it, pushing the boundaries. I have some really good meetings with the, with the team when we're, when we're putting these things together. And it's really interesting how the ideas come out. But I think with this one, it was, you know, let's not do barbecue with this amazing tool. Barbecue is just a tiny thing, a tiny portion of what it can do. And the other thing is, I think we, as, as young people say, we're going to lean in to the idea of uh, sort of festal feast eating. You know, because that's the other thing it is, is it's a sort of central, iconic object you can get a party around. Um, and, and we pushed it in those directions. And I think we've come up with something quite, quite different, quite exciting. Very exciting. And Tim's book, The Big Green Egg Feasts, is out now and they have copies in both Heifers and Waterstones. On to our first news roundup for today, Saturday 11th of March. The Gransdens Farmers Market is opening for the very first time in two weeks. Stores will include Sweet Pea Market Garden with salads and vegetable crops grown according to agroecological principles. There'll also be stores selling sourdough bread, jams, pickles and chutneys, pies and pasties, and there will be leaf teas from the tea apothecary, chocolates from Bean to Bar and a florist. It's in Little Gransden Village Hall from 9 until 1pm on the 26th of March and monthly after that. We wish them well. The Royal Oak in Barrington, now a Cam's Cuisine pub, is reopening its doors after its makeover at lunchtime on Tuesday the 14th of March. Finn Boys at the Fish Butchery in Mill Road has brought back its five-course menu box in which all the preparation is done for you and cooking instructions are provided. They'll be available every month, usually on the last Thursday of the month, but this month they'll be available on the 19th. You'll need to order by the 16th, Collect on the 18th so you can enjoy them on Mothering Sunday or the day before. The cost is £100 for two people. Café Ubuntu in Hobson Street is now opening on Mondays. Midsummer House is celebrating 25 years since Daniel Clifford opened the doors in 1998. To celebrate, they're offering lunch for £98 a head and an evening tasting menu for £198. Reservations can be made via Midsummer House website, email or phone. Uh, Tristan Welsh, who has left Parker's Tavern, is well worth following on social media, where he demonstrates with great affability ideas for reducing waste and saving money. His video on Wednesday, for example, showed how to make a homemade stock from vegetable peelings, so you never need to buy another stock cube. Tristan's videos are very entertaining and helpful and well worth a look. The Cambridge Festival starts on 17th of March and there are quite a few food-related talks. You can get more details from the Cambridge Festival website, but to whet your appetite, on the 21st of March, Professor Harjun Chang will be talking about his new book, Edible Economics, with food archaeologist Professor Martin Jones. And you can hear an interview with Martin Jones later in today's flavour. It's online from 6 till 7pm and is also available on demand and you can book for this via the festival website. 
There's a talk on food waste on the 22nd of March. It runs from 3 till 4pm. It's in person at Anglia Ruskin University. Also on the 22nd of March from 5.30 is The Future of Meat. It's live streamed and it ends at 6.30 and then it's available on demand. As featured on the last edition of Flavour, How Can We Approve Our Food Security is on 27th of March, both in person and live stream. It runs from 7.30 till 9. Finally, what really influences what young people eat? This is a live event. It's on the 29th of March from 7.30 to 8.30pm. And that's the news for now. More later. Well, we're pretty excited here on Flavour about the forthcoming Cambridge Festival. We had Professor David Rose on our last programme talking about food security, which is one of the events. Today, we're very pleased to talk with food archaeologist Professor Martin Jones, who'll be talking with the author of the new book, Edible Economics, Hardun Chang, during the festival. Asked him about that and about his own work as a food archaeologist. Well, I'm going to be interviewing a very interesting economist called Hao Jun Chang, who's got a particular <laughs> approach to economics. And also, like me, he's rather fond of food. He's just written a new book called A Hungry Economist Explains the World. He launches every chapter from some food he's interested in that makes a point about economics. What is the linkage between food and economics? Obviously, we have to eat to live. And is that his approach? It's very easy with a number of topics like economics to look at what the specialists do and think it's all about numbers. And he wants to take economics back to something more basic. Now, if if you look at the origins of the word, economics actually means the law of the household or household management. And from my archaeological perspective, one of the things that strikes me is for 99.9% of our species' existence, household management involves how do I feed my family or how do I feed my community. So for most of our species' existence, economics has been about getting and sharing food. And it still is to a large extent, except we've got a bunch of other junk now that we uh, buy and sell. Yeah, when we were cave dwellers, we didn't have to worry about the latest iPad or whatever. That's right, exactly, (laughs) So how is your conversation and how is your discussion going to develop? Because this is going to be online, isn't it? It is indeed. So I'm going, Hajun and I are going to be talking about his book for an hour. We'll be talking about his ideas about economics and... If I can just highlight what's interesting about his ideas is is if we go back to that model of the family sharing food, okay, so there are numbers in there, there's calories and quantities and so forth, but the whole thing is driven by relationships between people, how a community, be it a family or a large community, agree to work together, whether they want someone to take the lead, whether there's someone at the head of the table. And Hajun takes that forward to beyond the family, to the community and the state, and looks at economics and the role of policies, the roles of collective action in the state. And and he emphasises that if you look at the history of economics, you can see all these dynamics. You can see the power of policy, the power of collective action, and the power of planning ahead for the future. And so he's making an argument that economics is a lot more like the family Mm. feeding itself and that the numbers game is a, a very valuable tool, but it's just a tool in the larger field of economics, which is household 
management. And that's a really interesting sort of take on it. Where does your personal take on the food side of archaeology come in? What has been your specialism? Well, my specialism started with looking at uh, burnt grains of wheat and barley. And so I spent a lot of uh, time early in my career with something no more high-tech than a dustbin and a hosepipe. And essentially, if you go on an archaeological dig and you take some of that sediment out of the ground, stick it in a hosepipe with water, all the burnt grains float to the top. And it's surprising how many they are. And so I spent a lot of my early career with a dustbin and a hosepipe and a lot of dirt. <laughs> and, and, and then looking at it under the microscope. And it's astonishing what you can find. You can, well, it's a lot of food remains and under the microscope, even though it's burnt, you can identify a lot of it. So I, I started off talking about how food was, was farmed and how it was put together and so forth. And as my career developed, a whole series of other techniques came online. So genetics has affected everything. So later on in my career, in my team, were two full-time genetics, looking at the genetics of wheat, barley and millet and reproducing that. But the other thing that's happened is we can find out in these, what looks like an ordinary pot, we can find out what was cooked in it. So now we can go through the whole sequence from the genetics of the plants and the animals on which we rely to building together their farming systems or their food acquisition systems right through now to how they combined it in the meal. Because, of course, there's no recipes available then. But as you say, from food residue, you can see that was it a grain and a a milk or whatever was in the pot? Absolutely. When I wrote my book, um, Feast, Why Human Shares Food, I, I opened up each of my chapters with a kind of reconstructed meal. But it, I, I would emphasise it wasn't just the recipe, it was how the community was arranged around it and how the different roles they played in that. Because one of the things that really struck me about looking at the history of the meal is you can't distinguish the biological human getting calories and vitamins from the social human, either at the head of the table or on the other side of the table, or in one role or another. And, and, the thing, and the thing about the meal is it, it's one of those fields of life where those two sides of being human, the biological and social, are completely intertwined and inseparable. But of course, you can't tell who was the provider. Can you tell who was the provider, who was the cook? It could be either, couldn't it, from an archaeological perspective? If you can find evidence of where they were producing the food, and if you can find evidence of the kitchen, then you maybe can get some ideas about that. There are actually some very old, very ancient kitchens that have been excavated. When we're saying very ancient, how far back? I'm just thinking of a kitchen now that's about 12,000 years old, which is in a very nice uh, state. Is this in the UK? It's not actually, no, it's in in the Eastern Mediterranean. But the other thing, of, of course, which we do get in the UK and get everywhere, is although I mentioned now a kitchen, that the norm... The kitchen is is taking the food preparation outside from the eating area. But for a lot of the past, there was the hearth and the fire in the middle of everything. Of course. And you sat around the hearth and the fire. You cooked around the hearth and the fire. You ate around the hearth and the fire. You got warmth and company and companionship. And as I'm sure you know, the, the, the word company and companionship means with bread. 
So it's coming together with bread. Of course, gone mad. So there's that very long-standing community um, around the hearth. And as, as Hajun and I talked, actually, it was very evident that that theme resonated with how he was thinking about economics. He saw many things in that model of a sort of indivisible, of the community around the hearth, and that it starts with people and then the calories and the numbers follow on from that. Mm -hmm. Were you expecting to be teamed with an economist? Because it does, now you've explained it, it does seem a much more natural pairing. But when you were asked to do the talk, were you a little surprised? I was interested, but I found in my career, it's always very exciting to talk to someone from another field and to exchange ideas. And a lot of the movements forward I've made in my own work has been talking to other fields. And I mentioned earlier on that, that one of the, the steps in my research was to start talking to geneticists. When I started meeting with geneticists, I knew I had kind of an out-of-date view of genetics and, and they had a popular view of archaeology. I had these great conversations as we were reaching into each other's field. I relished the idea of talking to an economist just as I relished the idea of, talk, of talking to an organic geochemist or a, or a geneticist or, or someone else, because I think that's where you start really uh, getting to grips with thinking about the basic ideas that you're working with. No, I think it's fascinating. And wow, I've, I've certainly really enjoyed talking to you and having my mind open somewhat. So when is the talk going to be available? So, so it's going to be on Tuesday, the 21st of March, between 6pm and 7pm. Okay, and this is an online talk rather than in person, is it? That's right, it's an online talk, and its title is Edible Economics, How Much Can Food Tell Us About Economic Change? Oh, that sounds a real sort of feast for the ears. Just one last question, Harjun Chang, did you meet him in Cambridge when he was... um, he used to work in Cambridge. Now now he teaches at SOAS, but he has a a, a long Cambridge association, so we first met uh, then... And did you bounce some ideas around we, then? We did indeed. We certainly did bounce some ideas. And, and on meeting him again, he remembered a number of things that we'd spoken about. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's really nice. Well, I'll look forward to hearing the talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sue. That was Professor Martin Jones. The date of the event with Harjun Chang again is the 21st of March. Interesting that Martin talked about cooking and eating around the fire. That's just what Tim Hayward was saying before. <laughs> well, on to our second news roundup now. And from the 13th to the 23rd of March, it is Love Cambridge Restaurant Week. Now, this helps you discover new places by enjoying set menus at discounted prices. If you go to their website, you will see all the cafes and restaurants in the city taking part. And that's roughly about 35 places. You can get things like a, a cheeseburger or a veggie burger and fries from Steak and Honor, along with ice cream from Jack's Gelato, all for £15. Whilst over at the Bagel Box on Cambridge Market, you could get yourself any filled bagel with drink and crisps or a cookie for £5. Also on offer, a two or three course reduced price meal at places like Cambridge Chop House or Pint Shop. 
Wine news now. The uh, Wine Rooms in Hills Road is starting a new monthly wine flight with three 50ml glasses of wine and tasting notes. This month it's Bordeaux with wines from the 2016 and 2017 vintages. The tasting flight is available every day and there'll be a new trio to try next month. The evening tasting events will also be carrying on. On the 16th of March there are tastings of the wines of Lebanon. On the 30th of March, Gruner Vetlina. And on the 6th of April, Loire Reds. The tasting flight at Cambridge Wine Merchants this month is from Northern Italy. A flight of wines is available at both the Bridge Street and Cherry Hinton Road branches. Four 50ml glasses are £14. And Cambridge Wine Merchants has an evening tasting of Argentinian wines at the Cherry Hinton Road branch on 15th March at 7pm, cost £25. And a few tickets are left for the Whiskey Fair on 16th of March. That's at the Pitt Building in Trumpington Street and features more than 60 whiskies from over over 15 distilleries. It runs from 5 till 9pm and tickets are £25. Amphora's forthcoming tasting evenings include sparkling wines from around the world on the 15th of March. The 22nd of March sees a tasting of low intervention wines, whilst on the 29th it's wines from South Africa. All these begin at 8pm in Devonshire Road and the cost is £35. The Corner House pub in Newmarket Road, number 231, has a wine tasting on the 26th of March, which is a Sunday, and that's from 5.30 to 7.30pm. There will be six wines and a sparkling wine with food pairings. The cost is £30 and there's a £5 discount if you book before tomorrow, the 12th of March. Reserve your place by emailing cornerhousecams, with a B, at gmail or phone Cambridge 352047 or just go into the pub. And one last piece of news now. Chin Chin Bakery's donuts are available from Burwash Larder. <laughs> OK. Now, during lockdown in 2020, we saw some places close in the city, but others opened up as well. And even now, as we face potentially massive hikes in energy bills and further uncertainty, there is still room for expansion. And one such place is a taste of Hungary. This is a Hungarian grocery on Chesterton Road. Hello, my name is Mihai. I'm running the Hungarian grocery shop with my wife, Christina. Are there many Hungarian people here? Yes, roughly 2,000 families living around Cambridge, but we have lots of customers who are travelling from Scotland, Wales... All around the UK... Whatever you need, you can get here. Hungarian spirit, Hungarian wines, lots of different smoked meat and sausage, spices, chocolate, biscuits. Actually, more than 2,000 different items we got in the shop. Mihai and his wife Christina are from Miskovac in northeastern Hungary, which is... Surrounded by beautiful mountains. And we've got Tokaj as well, not far from Miskolc, famous for the Tokaj wine region, of course, and uh, the Osu. So, we picked out some items from the shop that might be interesting to new customers. My eyes went straight for the wine and meats. We just mentioned the Tokaj wine region, so let's start with some Tokaj sweet dessert wine. Well, it's like colour of honey, basically. And the older it is, the darker it becomes. So this one, for instance, is from 2001. So it is over 22 years old now. It is probably quite sweet, sweet as honey. Very, very delicious. So when they harvest the osu berries, 
You can think of a grape, right? There is this so-called, or in layman's terms, let's call it noble mold. It covers the berries and it literally makes berries lose all the water they consist. So it just evaporates and you get this raisiny-like texture and that's what people pick. That's how they harvest it. And that's what the osu is made of. Just looking at it here, it looks, it appears to look quite thick. As it a, is. It is, yeah, yeah. almost syrupy. Yes, it's very thick, and when you put in the glass, you can see on the glass side how slowly they, they go down. And from honey-like dessert wine to actual honey. We have in the shop more than 20 different honey from Hungary, and this is, in my hand, is Robinia honey. You see, I don't know how to call when it's moving. It's not stuck like a... So it's not crystallizing, you mean? Yeah, okay. not a solid honey. It's yes. a free, runny honey. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So it's like a acacia honey, basically. Yeah. 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 What am I looking at here in this jar? An apple and cinnamon honey. I've not seen that in any other shop, I don't think. Maybe I'm just blind. It's something Hungarians love doing. Mm. This is just a, a little family business. You buy these uh, different types of honey from, right? Yes, it's very famous and they just do a small amount eh? so they are not doing for the huge uh, market or something just for the small business they supply. We know what a British Sunday roast looks like but what about a Hungarian Sunday dish? Let's say a typical Hungarian Sunday lunch would be meat soup with pasta and cooked vegetables and we've got this, it's similar to your stuffing but it's taste is so different. We use different seasoning to season that. So that one with the cooked meat and chicken paprikash. It's like a sort of stew, not really noodles, um, nokedli we call it. What else? What what would you eat? Goulash, goulash definitely, goulash soup, and stuffed cabbage. The two together, they would be very heavy. We love to eat many dish with the smoked meat. Yeah, and we, we also prepare different salads, like a mayonnaise-based salad. There we go with the meats. Now, if there's one thing that Mihai is not short of in his shop, it's meats. Dried meats, smoked meats, smoked dried meats. Come and meet the smoked dried meats. So this one, the Mongolica sausage. I, I think we can say that this is world famous, given the fact that the pig, the pig itself, Mongolica, it's um, especially useful for people who struggle with cholesterol because the fat it consists, it's not the harmful one that could increase cholesterol level. So, well, we wouldn't say it's fatless because it's uh, pork at the end of the day, but it's the good type of fat. And again, the game meat, so the venison and the wild boar, they sort of game meat in the UK and Europe. I think is very popular and people love it. Oh, and this one, yeah, this one is with the ghost pepper. You know, the ghost chili pepper. They tiny chili peppers and extremely hot. So I think in the United States, they organize these special competitions. And I think this might be the hottest. It's a very good challenge to eat even. So One of the hottest ones, I suppose. Hottest. It consists of a little bit of that. So like you say, this is a red-hot spicy meat. Just a, a small slice of that will... Yes, yes, definitely. Yes, yeah. yes, probably. For example, <laughs> for example, on 10 kilogram meat, they just put tiny bit, for example, one spoon of uh, ghost pepper, that's all. Oh, wow. And what is very spicy. From Hungary, they ask the smoked sausage, which one is a beech wood, ready to eat. Mm -hmm. For example, Hungarian goulash, stew. 
We are also very proud of the Hungarian wines. Mm. For example, we have a full blood dry red wine. Mm -hmm. And we are very proud of the Hungarian uh, spicy peppers. We just eating with the bread. But you've got to say that this is like hot chili. chili. So it's like a paste. Pepper. The hotness level of this is wow. <laughs> this caught my eye straight away. And it's, oh, it's pork scratching. Okay. Much more softer than the English one. It's unsalted because the texture is changed when you salt it up. Mm -hmm. We're just eating uh, morning times usually. Very nice breakfast. Morning pork scratchings. Very greasy, very greasy and very fatty. Yes, yes, but it's, it's really soft and moist as well. So it's just a really nice texture as, as you explained it. And we would eat it with bread, definitely white bread, our hot chili peppers, maybe mayonnaise, I would choose mayonnaise actually, and horseradish. Yeah. Would you regard that as a bit of a generational food as well? Would youngsters still be interested in...? No, usually the other people. Oh, okay. So we're all the people now. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think we just put paprika in pretty much every single dish we cook. We just love it and we've got the smoked version as well. So when you cook or when you bake something with that one, obviously the, the taste of the food is a little bit smoky. So it's, it's quite nice. It's mm. quite nice. With a good glass of red wine. <laughs> with the family business next to me, it's my wife. Without her, we can't run this shop. She is behind us always, and she always got a new idea of what we do to keep interesting the customers. Not only Hungarian, all nationalities we're talking about, obviously. At the moment as well, she's working home on the Hungarian restaurant, so she's ordering stuff, background job. Yeah. So it's full steam ahead. I'm not boring, at least. Always work hard. <laughs> She will make sure you've got enough things to do. <laughs> well, it's lovely to meet you guys, and it's great to pop in here and see just what's going on. We're at the Taste of Hungary at 50 Chesterton High Street, and we wish you all the best, and let's root for the restaurant to come along too. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you're listening to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. Yeah, many thanks to Mihai and Judith there, who was uh, helping along. And in about six months' time, as it said at the end of that feature, they are hoping to open a Hungarian restaurant on Chesterton Road. It'll be close by. And Mihai says that uh, people will are invariably going to use the Hungarian shop and the restaurant together. Now, this restaurant is going to be called Chadash, and his wife is working really hard right now on all the details as we speak. And one extra thing, Mihai gave us plenty of Hungarian wine and meats to try in the studio. There's going to be lots of strong and sweet flavours, smoked flavours, and of course, paprika. That will be going on at the end of the programme, but first... There's Rockin' Robin, which signals time for news from social media. Levante Kitchen is having another pop-up at Meadows. That's at 213 Mill Road. It's a casual evening of fresh pasta and wine. It's on the 31st of March from 6 to 10pm. And James Thorne of Thorne Wines has announced an event at Provenance Kitchen in Whittlesford on the 19th of April. It's a traditional Catalan culinary festival that marks the beginning of spring. There are four courses, each with wines, chosen by James Thorne, so they will be very good. It's on the 19th of April, it's at 7pm. Tickets are from Eventbrite, £76.55, and the event is called Calcutta. 
Green Onion signalling the start of our job section. Hot Numbers in Shepreth has a vacancy for a pizza chef and also for a member of the baking team. Just email recruitment at hotnumberscoffee.co.uk for details or to apply. The Food Museum in Stowmarket is looking for a part-time deputy catering manager for its cafe. Full details are on the Food Museum's website. Some jobs in brief now. Apply via the company's website or pop in at a quiet time for a chat. Two commie chefs are needed at Bedouin in Mill Road. Market House has vacancies for three chefs de partie and Corpus Christi College is also looking for a chef de partie. A head chef is required at Limoncello and also at Cote and also at the Dog and Duck in Linton. Pint Shop is looking for a chef and a pastry chef. There's a vacancy for a chef, ideally with experience in Spanish and Mediterranean cuisine at La Raza and Wagamama is in need of a sous chef. Here's an extraordinary one we couldn't resist including. The British Antarctic Survey needs an experienced chef for its Rother Research Station in the Antarctic. Among the benefits listed in the advert are free parking and a cycle-to-work scheme. And now we have got the pleasure of some Hungarian food from Mihai, which he has given us to taste. Now, first off... We have got the Tokai Azu, which he mentioned in that feature. It's an incredibly sweet wine They're from 2001, this I've one. Been, I've been drinking it now. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried it yet. I'm through it. Mm. <laughs> and it is incredibly sweet. That's absolutely oh, true. Wow. It says more flavours than you could possibly imagine in a single it's wine. It's, mm. com- it's something I didn't expect and wh- at all. And why, why, why is it so sweet? Is it? Uh... Well, it's because of the way that it's made. The region where these mm. wines are made is a volcanic region with two rivers flowing yeah. through. It's got this perfect microclimate. And the wine is made in this uh, subterranean mould-covered cellar, and the, the mould is called noble rot. Oh, there's no... Oh, so really? Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. what helps yeah. give it the yes. flavour. And yet, despite the whole area being covered in mould, apparently the, the air is completely fresh. Mm. So, mm. you know, you wouldn't suffer if you went around there. Mm. And the cheese... The it's cheese is, is smoked, smoked. Is, I can tell it's smoked, smoked. Yeah. yeah. Now, he suggested that we have the mm. cheese with the wine. This is what I'm doing. It's very nice. <laughs> yes, yes. This, this wine is amazing, though. I mean, it is sweet, but it's not so sweet that you think, bleh. Oh, yeah. It's some, some, really nice. some sweet wines just oh, taste like lovely. they've had a bag of sugar. And it has got a smoky what flavor. What are these sausages, then, Matt? Oh, the mm. sausages. Yes, of course. Mm. Now, um, there's a mangalika sausage. I hope I said that right. Have you got that one there? Mm, Mangalikas, that this yeah, one here, yeah. Now that comes from a woolly Hungarian pig, known colloquially as the pig sheep. Um, it's, <laughs> it's full of, it's got lots of fat in it. Half the meat and twice as much fat as a white pig. Mm, but it's very mm. tasty. Yeah, yeah. I need some wine with it, though. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Mm. But it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because in England we have, well... Great Britain, we tend to put a lot of rusk in with our sausages. Mm. And, okay, we use the the pork and then also the back fat. Yeah. But so many continental sausages, there's no rusk in it at Mm. all. It's just the fat and the meat. Mm. And so you get the full flavour of the meat as well. Mm. Mm. Right, we're going to have to go. What's this one, mm. Sue? What's this? Mm. This next one is Hazi Kobash. And this is including garlic and paprika. Yeah, it's delicious. And Everything's got paprika in shop, it. And this shop's in Chesterton mm. Road, Matt, near, yep. th- near mm. Thursday. And there's near some venison Thursday. and some boar sausage as well. Wow. Mm. OK, well, 
Well, we're nearly out of time. You can catch Flavor on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon. We're repeated on Mondays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m. And Flavor will, of course, be available as a podcast early next week. Coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio Today at 1 p.m. is The Gadget Guide with Robin Lawrence. And at 2, it's Sue Marchant's Selection. But that's all from us. We will be back on the 25th of March with plenty more food and drink news, jobs and features. We're going to carry on Ooh, eating yum, and yum, drinking. Yum. Mm. I'm going to say goodbye to everyone. our listeners. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. This <laughs> oh, this is so nice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.